All right, if we could take our seats, please. Turn with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 22. The title of my message this morning is, Whose Son is the Christ? Whose Son is the Christ? We've seen in previous verses that Jesus is conversing with the religious elite of the day. And his wisdom has proven to be far too superior for the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And time and time again, they try to entrap Jesus by asking him carefully crafted questions that they thought much too difficult for him to answer. And it's interesting because if you read Psalm 38, 12, it states, those who seek my life lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and meditate, meditate treachery all day long. you know, the Pharisees and the Sadducees just hated Jesus. And they were relentless as they laid snares for him. Psalm 57, 6 states, they dug a pit in my way, but they have fallen into it themselves. Every trap that they set for Jesus, they fell into themselves with these arguments that they had. Over time, they tried to defeat him with carefully conceived questions, but they stumbled and they were defeated. And it's a frightening thing to oppose God. When man opposes God, that's a very frightening thing. But his opponents didn't care. With hardened hearts, they were not ready to surrender, but were getting quite desperate as they wanted to turn the people against Jesus. So let's look at the passage here. We're going to start reading in verse 34 of Matthew chapter 22. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all of your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second one is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. And he said to them, How is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under my under your foot feet. If then David calls him Lord. How is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Let's pray. Sovereign Lord, we thank you for the opportunity that we have here today to come and worship you in this place. Thank you that you are here in the midst of us and that it brings you much delight when we worship you. Please teach us your word, O Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Whose son is the Christ? My first point is loving God with a fallen mind. Loving God with a fallen mind. Look at verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a 
question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? So gathering together to plot against Jesus, they decide to ask him another question. But this time they bring a lawyer to the forefront to ask the question. Now, the lawyer was a scribe, an authority of the law of God. He was an expert. He was a particularly learned individual, so much so that rabbis like him had gotten together and counted all of the laws in the Old Testament and found that there were 613 of them. And so this teacher of the law asks Jesus to give his opinion as to which of all the commandments were the most weighty. The Pharisees were hoping, just hoping, that Jesus would say something that would contradict what they considered to be their extensive legal knowledge. And if he did, their hope was that the people's view of Jesus would diminish. And their hope was that the people would admire them and look more favorably on them. It's very interesting that the one who is supposed to be the one of the greatest experts of the law is confronting the author of the law. The only person in history who has and ever will be able to keep all of the 613 commands of God. Comparing this expert to Jesus, he was thoroughly lawless. Compare ourselves to Jesus and so are we. Every law that comes from Almighty God is serious enough to warrant the death penalty if it's violated. The slightest transgression of the slightest law that comes from God is an act of, as some scholars would say, cosmic treason. An act of defiance against the Lord who rules all things. I was a teacher in Dallas, Texas when I lived there, and I was teaching little kids one day at a charter school, and one of the little children said, Mr. Reyes, so-and-so borrowed my pencil, and he will not give it back. And the little kid said, I forgot to give it back. I said, well, the fact is you took it, and you didn't give it back when you know you should have given it back. You broke God's law. You stole. But let me tell you some good news. And I was able to share the gospel with that little second grader. And it was just a wonderful time. But all mankind, apart from Christ, stands condemned because everyone has broken God's law. Even if it is borrowing something and not giving it back. That's called stealing. We're all sinners. But some of us in this room have been saved by God's glorious grace, which means that we are forgiven and we've been accepted. While some of us here may still be under the wrath of God and without repentance, without trusting Christ, we'll face eternal wrath forever and ever. Which category do you fall into? Verse 37, he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. So Jesus refers the lawyer to to Deuteronomy chapter 6, 
verses 4 and 5, which is called the Shema, which every devout Jew recited out loud two times a day. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. God requires of mankind more than just bare belief. The devil believes in Jesus. Demons believe and tremble. When we're out evangelizing, someone might say, Oh, I believe in God. Well, that's nice, but so does Satan. What does that mean? God requires more than just bare belief. The religious elite of the day had an outward appearance of love for God, but inside they were dead men. A person who belongs to God loves God. Paul loved God. I love reading Paul's letters. But he knew that his love was imperfect and he knew his obedience was imperfect. But he pressed on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. We sin, right? We're sinners. We sin because we are sinners. We sin because it is in our nature to sin. Romans 5.12 states, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all have sinned. No one in this room is above sin. It is something we all inherited, passed down to us, going all the way back to Adam. David wrote in Psalm 51.5, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. So from the moment of fertilization, I was sinful. And sin will ultimately separate an unbeliever from God. Here's one of my favorite definitions of the term sin by Jeff Perswell. Any failure to conform oneself to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. Now understand, where there is no law, there is no sin. But if the law is violated, there is sin. And everyone has violated the law on this earth. Remember the rich young ruler who said that he had kept all of God's commands, but he didn't? From the moment he got out of bed that morning, he had broken them. And the same goes for us. We have not kept a single one of God's commands since we rose from our comfortable beds this morning. Even as Christians, we cannot keep all of God's commands perfectly. Now, God gives us the grace to obey him, but we still sin. The only difference between Christians and non-Christians is the fact that when we do sin, we have a great high priest who we can go to, as we were talking earlier, who sympathizes with our weaknesses, who is tempted in every way. The world does not have that privilege. They stand condemned. They do not have Christ. Now, we don't go on making a habit or a practice of sinning as Christians so that grace may abound, heaven forbid. But we have the Holy Spirit now in us who helps us not to sin. But we do. We sin. 
So can we as imperfect people love God perfectly? The answer is no. Only God loves perfectly. The single most important command God gave us was to love him with all of our souls and minds. Yet the greatest transgression is failing to love him with every fiber of our being. With all of our hearts, the heart represents the core of one's personal being. With all of our soul, the soul is closest to what we would call our emotions. With all of our minds represents our intellect and determination, our mental strength. Have those been perfected? No. D.A. Carson says, heart, soul, and mind are not mutually exclusive, but overlapping categories together demanding our love for God to come from our whole person, our every faculty and capacity. The truth is, I have never obeyed this command fully. I stand before you as your pastor saying that. I have never loved God with my whole being. Do I love him? Yes. Do I desire to love him with my entire being? Yes. Do I love him perfectly? No. Every day, there's a war. Every day, there is a battle. Every day, my mind wants to go somewhere where God does not want it to go. Every day, my mind needs to be renewed. Every day, God gives me the grace to think upon Christ when it so badly wants to think about other things. And in that warfare, as I cry out to God for help, the Holy Spirit gives me the grace, enables me, and helps me. Do I stumble? Yes. But the Holy Spirit renews my mind to think about the loveliness of God. Some people may think, you know what? Pastors, they're perfect. They got their heads screwed on straight. I'm a person just like you. I bleed. I'm not perfect. Don't put me on a pedestal. Don't put CB on a pedestal. (laughs) A book just came out recently called The Imperfect Disciple, Grace for People Who Can't Get Their Act Together. I'm going to buy that book because it's probably written about me. (laughs) But I'm so thankful to God that he loves me perfectly. And we should be thankful to God that he loves us perfectly. Because he first loved me, I can love him. Even though it may be imperfect. He is altogether lovely. He is God. And that should be enough For me to love him. Not just because of what he's done for me. But because of who he is. Loving him first and foremost. Because he is God. And then of course when I think of how he has forgiven me of. So many horrible sinful things. That forgiveness should. Be enough to spark in my heart. Soul and mind a deep affection. For him as well. Because I surely don't deserve his love. I know what I deserve. I deserve hell. 
But loving God also means that we should also love his word. David said in Psalm 119.97, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. God speaks to us today. He speaks to us primarily through his word. He reveals us himself to us through his word. And the more we're in his word, the more we study it and learn it, the more our affection toward him grows. I remember when I was in jail and they took my Bible away from me. It was one of the hardest things I I had to endure. I, I said, please, can I keep my Bible? And they said, no, and they took it. And I remember being in that cell without the word. And that was the first time in my Christian life that I did not have the Bible with me. And I just prayed, Lord, please, I want the scriptures. I need the scriptures. And I remember as soon as I prayed that, the door opened and they gave me back my Bible. God answered my prayer. But we should have a love for his word and not take it for granted. There are Christians throughout the world who would die just to have a sliver of a passage of the scripture. And the more we're in it, the more we study it, the more we learn from it, the more our affection towards our Father grows, towards the Son grows, towards the Holy Spirit grows. And though that affection toward him will be imperfect until that great and wonderful day when our eyes shall see him face to face, the more we grow in the grace of God, the more we'll grow and love him and love for him. Point number two, loving man with a fallen mind. So we talked about loving God with a falling mind. Now we're going to talk about loving man with a fallen mind. Verse 39. Jesus says, The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So Jesus just doesn't identify the greatest of all commands. He decides to point out the second greatest of those commands. The Bible does not teach the universal brotherhood of all men. Okay, you're with me, you're following me here. That would be called universalism, which is heresy. Not everyone is going to heaven. But it does teach the universal neighborhood of all men. Everyone is my neighbor. And because everyone is my neighbor, I am commanded by God to love them, though that love will be imperfect. Now, I I can't say that I love God if I disregard his command to love other people. I cannot love God and despise my neighbor. Even if my neighbor is my enemy. Because we're called to love even our enemies. I was visiting my family over Thanksgiving and I sat down with my mom just to Talk to her about her life. She had a very interesting life growing up. She's an immigrant. Was born in East Germany. uh, Right after World War II. And immigrated to the United States. And married a man who was from Puerto Rico. (laughs) 
and I've said it before, but I'm a Puerto Rican. My mother's Polish. I'm a Puerto Rican. But um, she shared with me something that I never knew. She said when she married my father, there was a lot of hostility. People would not rent their apartment to them because my father was Puerto Rican. He was considered dirty. And that kind of prejudice continued in their life against them and then into my life as I was growing. And what's interesting, I've received prejudice from both Puerto Ricans and from whites. Puerto Ricans think I'm too white. Whites think I'm too Puerto Rican. I just say I'm a Christian. Before I'm Puerto Rican, before I'm white, I'm a Christian. Saved by the grace of God. But my sister was attacked at a bus stop by racists. We had a rock thrown through our window with my head being on the other side of that window when I was 11 years old by racists. The Ku Klux Klan shot up my mother's car as a form of initiation into the Klan. This guy had to do this in order to be initiated in the Klan. There was one guy in our neighborhood, he drove, I'll never forget, I was a little boy and I still remember this so vividly. He drove a Ford Escort. It was sky blue. And he was a, about 10 years older than I and he always wore a white baseball cap backwards. And I was a paper boy and I remember delivering the papers. And I had delivered the last paper to the last house, it was right on the beach. It was a big house and I was ready to go home and I was waiting for the cars as they were driving by this main road. I was going to cross the road and here he comes in his escort. But he wasn't driving. I'll never forget this. He wasn't driving. And as he was driving by me, he put his hand out like this and went like this to me, like he was shooting me. We found out later that he was part of the Ku Klux Klan. And I thought, what did I do to be hated so much by people I don't really know. And I didn't know Jesus then. And I carried that pain for many years and that heartache. I experienced hatred. Not only was I the recipient of it, but I was the giver of it as well. Because I, in turn, started hating them for what they did to us. And before God, I was just as guilty as they were. And God confronted me on that. On November 28th, 1990, when he saved me. He showed me what a sinner I was. That I had broken his commands. But as a Christian, I am called to love my enemies. How do I do that? How do I love people who blew up my mom's car? How do I love people who who threw a rock through the window? How do I love people who beat up my sister? How do I love people who threaten my life and my family's life as a Christian now? How do I love those people? Grace. Grace enables me to do so. Grace enables me to pray for them. Jesus said, pray for those 
who persecute you. Pray for them. Pray for your enemies. Pray for their salvation. I pray that when I go back to Connecticut, I will run into that man with the white baseball cap. And I'll be able to say, let me tell you about Jesus. I forgive you. Let me tell you about the Lord. And sometimes, you know, sometimes we can act wickedly and not even realize it. When Kim and I were looking for a house in the Wyoming area, a, a, a person in that neighborhood said something that was very interesting, very sad, actually. And uh, kind of caught off us off guard. He, he basically warned us that the rougher crowd was moving in from Reading. So watch out. And I thought, when Kim had shared that with me, because I wasn't with her, but when, he, when she had shared that with me, I thought, the rougher crowd are moving in from Reading into Wyoming, into Shillington? Oh, God forbid. I say, let them come. If we're not going to go to them, Lord, bring them to us so that we might preach the gospel to them. But then I thought, who's the rougher crowd? What is the demographic of Reading, Pennsylvania? Who makes up the majority of people in Reading, Pennsylvania? And the answer is Puerto Ricans. I thought, here we go again. But that's okay. Because I am going to trust that man to God. I'm going to pray for him. And I'm going to tell him about Jesus. And I love him. And I don't think he knows what he's talking about. Someday, though. Someday, I hope to love my neighbor perfectly. And I think I will in heaven. I don't love them perfectly now, but someday. And then Jesus says, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Remember that Jesus is addressing the Pharisees here. They had no genuine love for God. And since they had no genuine love for God, they had no genuine love for their neighbor. They didn't even really care for their fellow Jew, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they they hated the Gentiles. And loving our neighbor is a purposeful, intentional, and active choice, which is measured by love of oneself. Treat them as you would want to be treated. John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is a sacrificial love that we are able by grace to extend to our brothers and our sisters in Christ and even to our unsaved neighbors. We reflect God's love to the world as his church. And sometimes we screw up and we sin and we aren't that reflection. But what a testimony it is when we go to our neighbor humble ourselves and repent to them for the times that we have failed to love them, whoever our neighbor is. Point number three. 
the loving kindness of the Son. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. God's enemies really believed that their carefully crafted questions would stump our Lord, forcing him to give them an answer that would get him in trouble. Perhaps, again, they were hoping the people would turn against him or that the Roman authorities would have reason to arrest him. Yet all of Jesus' answers stunned them as he answered them with, with ease. No problem at all, because he's God. He evaded dangerous ground, and as a result, he really made them look foolish. Now we're going to see that not only was Jesus proficient at answering questions at the religious establishment, though they were tough, uh, he was above the rest of them with wisdom and insight. And now he himself returns the favor, if you will, and he asks the question. He says, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? So he questions them about Psalm 110, which is the Old Testament text that is quoted the most frequently in the New Testament. It's quoted numerous times in the New Testament because it offers profound insights about Jesus's identity. So Jesus is asking the religious establishment for their opinion about the Christ, namely whose son would he be? That is, from which family line in Israel would he come? He's asking about the Messiah. Now, in the first century, pretty much everyone was thinking about the Messiah. Everyone in authority was concerned about the Old Testament prophecies that promised the future coming of the Messiah of Israel. The religious establishment knew that the Messiah was to come from the lineage of David. They knew that God had entered into a covenant with David, promising him that there would be a king from his line that would be enthroned forever. And after years of rebellion and apostasy by Israel, the people longed for the day when David's house would be restored and the one like David would come. So in Jesus' day, hope and expectation for the Messiah's entrance was at peak level. As the Jews were under the oppression of Rome, they longed for a deliverer to come and the lost glory of their nation to be renewed. They were expecting someone. They were expecting a warrior. They were expecting a champion who would lead the nation of Israel to victory over Rome. One who would free them from tyranny and oppression. Look at verse 43. Here we see Jesus ask a much more difficult question. And this question tested the knowledge the Pharisees had of the scriptures and their understanding of them as well. He says to them, How is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? Good question. So here Jesus cites the first verse in Psalm 110, the Psalm of David, in which he speaks of the Messiah as his Lord. Now in Jewish custom, the son is never greater than his father. Therefore, a descendant was always subordinate to the elder. 
So Jesus is asking a question here. How can it be possible that David should speak of his son as his Lord? What's also interesting is that Jesus is indicating that when David wrote Psalm 110, he wasn't just exercising his gift as a poet, but he was being in the spirit, meaning that David was being supervised and led by the Holy Spirit in writing. The Apostle Paul writes in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture, and in this context, Old Testament scripture, is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So all scripture has God as its author, even though they were written with human hands. So Jesus is reminding these men that David's writing was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And it was under that inspiration that David referred to the Messiah as his Lord. In Psalm 110.1, David wrote, The Lord said to my Lord. Now listen to this. This is great. The first word for Lord in Psalm 110.1 is Yahweh. That means I am. Yahweh. In Psalm 110, Yahweh is having a conversation with someone apart from himself, someone whom David identifies as my Lord. Are you following me? The second Lord is not Yahweh in Psalm 110. It is Adonai. So therefore, Yahweh is having a conversation with Adonai, And the definition of Adonai is the sovereign one. So God is speaking to the sovereign one. The first person of the Trinity is conversing with the second person of the Trinity. And the third person of the Trinity is inspiring David to write the psalm. When when pastors study for sermons, it's very spiritually perspiring because you want to you want you want to handle the word of god carefully you don't want to abuse god's word but it's also a worshipful moment when you're in the word studying the word preparing in my preparations for this sermon at this point it was a very worshipful moment for me to see in psalm 10 the trinity being explained that was a very worshipful moment for me. It's a great Old Testament passage also, brothers and sisters, to refute the heresy of modalism, which believes God is one person who has revealed himself in three forms or modes, or even when you're engaging a a Jehovah's Witness who does not believe in the Trinity. So Adonai is God himself, Jesus Christ. David's son is David's Lord. David's son is David's sovereign. The one who comes forth from the lineage of David is David's king. That king is the king of kings, Jesus Christ. And Psalm 110, God is inviting God, God the Father is inviting God the Son to sit in the seat of cosmic authority. That's awesome. Amen? Isn't that awesome? In the Old Testament, you see God the Father talking to God the Son, and then God the Spirit is inspiring David to write all this down? How awesome is that? I think it's awesome. I'm having another worshipful moment here. (laughs) 
So why did Jesus bring up this particular psalm? He understood that the Pharisees were looking for a human conqueror to free the Jews from oppression rather than looking for a sovereign Lord who would be exalted to the right hand of the Father in the ascension. They were so focused on the Romans that they were missing the kingdom of God right before their very eyes. Jesus was declaring the Messiah's deity here. That the Messiah was equal with God in our honor, power, and glory. The Pharisees' conclusion from this should have been that Jesus himself was Adonai, the divine Messiah, the son of David, the sovereign one, the son of God. Verse 46. And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. The Pharisees did not know how to explain Psalm 110. The teachers of the law, the experts, could not rightly divide the word of truth. They couldn't even try to answer Jesus' questions. They were done. Done. They were tired of being embarrassed by Jesus' superior wisdom. They had had enough. Tom, if you would come up with the worship team. John MacArthur once said, The Pharisees and other religious leaders there that day were dumbfounded, but not convinced. Silenced, but not convicted. Humiliated, but not humbled. Reluctantly impressed, but still unbelieving. Doubtless, they were thinking they had been intimidated and embarrassed for the last time by the uneducated, unordained, and in their minds, unorthodox rabbi from Nazareth. This event just fueled their rage. But we'll see as we continue our series that our Lord Jesus is not done with them yet. Who is Jesus? He is the sovereign one. He is the Messiah. He is the one who came to this earth and in love, in his love for his creation, man submitted to the Father and laid his earthly life down on a cross for sinners. Sinners who if they renounce their sin and trust their lives to Jesus, the risen Christ, will be forgiven of every sin they have committed. Sinners who, if they have repented of their sins, have been filled with the Holy Spirit who now enables them to love God and to love their neighbor, both friend and foe. And although that love is not yet perfect, one day it will be. And we will enjoy perfect fellowship and walk in perfect harmony with our brothers and sisters and with our Lord, the Sovereign One. We'll walk with Him for all eternity in perfect harmony. There won't be any more quarreling No more discord amongst the believers. 
It'll be wonderful. Tom is going to lead us and he's going to close us out in prayer. I'm going to be in the back greeting you as you leave. Love the Lord. Love your neighbor. Whether they be friend or foe, love them. Yes, we do rejoice in you, Jesus. Son of God, our Savior. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for bending to bless us with your unrelenting love, Lord. And I just pray, Lord, as we go from this place, that at every step that we take, that we remember how unrelenting your love is. How you have set your affections upon us, Lord. How you are worthy of our praise. You are worthy of our obedience. You are worthy of our love. And we give it to you now, Lord. In Jesus' name. God bless you. Have a great week.